Although I don't have a verse for it, I suspect the cello and not the harp is the true instrument of heaven. And so, Claire, thank you for serving us in that way. And for Becca and Zach, uh, do you all notice how perfectly the songs prepare us for each week's message? And how the conclusion allows us to respond to the truth that we've heard? And that doesn't happen accidentally or easily. And so, thank you all for so prayerfully and diligently serving us each week. And it's just a beautiful reason that we can, one of the reasons we come together. Well, this summer, my family and I vacationed in Colorado. And uh, we started out in Colorado Springs where my daughter was visiting a college friend. And then we headed northwest, crossed the Boreas Pass into Breckenridge and meandered our ways through the mountains into Denver. Checked into our hotel, and there we thought we'd head to Union Station to eat and to walk around the city. And we happened to pass by the Capitol, which, if you've seen it, has the beautiful Golden Dome. But as we came close, where I was expecting groomed grounds, uh, there were large homeless encampments. And then when we passed directly in front of the Capitol, it was fenced off, boarded up, vandalized, defaced with paint. And then as we went into the other neighborhoods, they were in similar disrepair. And it was so disheartening that those charged with keeping order had given way to lawlessness and that those charged with representing this ground and protecting it had allowed it to be vandalized in this way. And then even when we went to the touristy areas, uh, the streets felt empty. There were homeless everywhere. I felt unsafe with my wife jogging the next morning. And it was such a discouragement and a disappointment. And God brought to mind as we were driving through the streets, Psalm 11:3, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Because doesn't it feel like this year that the foundations have been destroyed or we're seeing fractured foundations exposed in just how fragile civilization is? Order, harbor, order. We're... we're a hundred days yesterday is Portland's streak of violence. Twenty cities have seen riots. You can't open a paper, turn on a news station, go to a news website without seeing more hate, more conflict, more fear. And people are moving out of their neighborhoods, moving out of their cities, leaving their states. People are holding themselves up in their homes, buying guns and ammo and food. Despair, anxiety, depression are on the rise. This has been a discouraging, disillusioning season. And that's on top of the insecurity of COVID, of the economic insecurity, the instability. We can't seem to have a civil discourse on whether or not kids should be in school. And it's been an unsettling season. And it leaves us with the pressing question, if the foundations are being destroyed, then what are the righteous to do? And God gave us the answer to that 3,000 years ago in the 11th Psalm of David. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11, where we want to look at the answer to the question, what do the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? We notice, first of all, that this is a Psalm of David. Before David was known as a warrior and a king, he first gained notoriety as a musician. That's how he found his way into Saul's palace, playing the harp to settle the soul of a troubled king. And David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. 73 of the 150 psalms, almost half, are officially designated by David. And the important thing for our story tonight, today is 
David was one that was well acquainted with enemies and wicked people seeking his life. He, David had his life sought by Saul, uh, by his own son, by numerous enemies, both within and without. David went through the country turmoil of civil wars and unrest, and yet David had found his Lord faithful. But when we read these words, this counsel from a person of what do you do when the wicked threaten and the foundations are being destroyed, David's one that lived through that much more so than most of us will. And so David didn't just write this from a quiet chapel or a silent study or an ivory tower. David had lived through this. David was going through this. And so this is proven words. But we also notice in the superscript that this is for the choir director because this personal experience of David to find his God faithful in times of turmoil and danger is true for all God's people. This is to be sung by the people of God. This is to be reminded. This is one of the ways that we encourage one another when times get dark and, and the seasons get frightful is we come together and remind ourselves that what was true for David is true for us. And we sing and we celebrate a God who is such a faithful protector. And we encourage each other by reminding ourselves of where our hope lies. And so with that as the superscript, we enter into a declaration of David that in the Lord I take refuge. So a refuge is some place or something or some person you flee to when you're frightened. And so a child runs to a parent. A student looks for a teacher. Uh, a wife calls a husband. An adult calls the police. We batter up our homes. Uh, I remember as a young boy living in Louisiana that a hurricane uh, came and our house on stilts wasn't going to withstand the winds. So we all went to the local school and there in those thick concrete walls, I, that's one of my early memories of Louisiana, is hearing this hurricane blow all around us. There, all the community taking shelter in the school, seeking refuge together, and then going out into the eerie eye of the storm. Uh, when we lived in Nebraska and tornadoes would come and you'd go down into the basement. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but as you go in the parking lot, there's a basement shelter there. And I don't know if that was dug for hurricanes or for nuclear attack, whatever generation that was built in, there's a refuge here on grounds. And David says, my refuge, whatever the threat, whatever the danger, my refuge is in the Lord. And this isn't just in this instance. This is a running refrain for David and for us. Uh, this is just some of the samples from the scriptures. Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The fact that David sought his refuge and his safety in God was enough for him to appeal for God for security and safety. In you, O Lord, I've taken refuge is a quotation from two Psalms. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Trust in him at all times, O people, for God is a refuge for us. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. As for me, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And my eyes are towards you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. And that last verse gives us an idea of the sense of when things threaten, when danger is around me, where do my eyes turn? Where do my eyes dart? Where do I look to for someone big and strong and close to be able to protect me? And David, before danger ever beset him, had already committed himself, the Lord is my refuge. 
And whatever danger comes, He is the one that I will look to in times of threat. Now this didn't mean that David didn't take other precautions, that there weren't walled cities and fortifications and sharpened swords and hammered shields and ready armor and soldiers trained for battle. But we know that the watchman watches in vain unless the Lord guards the city. So we take precautions, we prepare, but ultimately we know our hope is in the Lord. And the Lord is not just a synonym for God. The Lord is God's name. The Lord is Yahweh. This is the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the one who rescued Noah from the flood. This is the one who called Abram out of Ur of Chaldees. This is the one that delivered Israel from Egypt. This is the one that led them through the Red Sea and let the waters encompass Pharaoh's army. This is the one that provided food and water for his people in the desert, who protected them from the Amalekites, who delivered them from their enemies, who time and again was their stay and their fortress and their field and the shield and the refuge. So to say the name the Lord is my refuge is to bring back a whole history of times of God's fidelity and faithfulness, that even when we're unfaithful, God won't deny himself, that he's always faithful and true. And the character of God, who is so holy and who is so righteous and is so patient and compassionate and gracious and forgiving, that even when his people were insubordinate and in disobedience and defied him and betrayed him and denied him, that he continued to be faithful to the covenant because they were his people. And he continued to deliver them and rescue them time and again, even when they weren't worthy. And this is the almighty the eternal, the ever-present, all-knowing God, that there's times when I can run to this source for help in this disaster or in this danger, but God is the only one that we can turn to in all circumstance and is always able to deliver and always knows exactly what to do and is always present to help and is always willing, even if we've been disobedient, to come to our aid because that's the God He is and not the people that we are. And so to say the name the Lord is a beautiful reminder of the character and the greatness and the goodness of our God that we can make our refuge. And also to remind us, though, that having God as our refuge doesn't exempt us from trials and doesn't make us impervious to pain and doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer in this life, but that we trust in Him to grant us perseverance and endurance and protection and deliverance until his purposes for us are accomplished. Uh, my wife had a Bible study fellowship instructor once that looked at the ladies and said, you are invulnerable until God's purpose for you is completed. Kind of makes you feel good, doesn't it? <laughs> that you are invulnerable until God's purpose for you is completed. And then when our particular number of days that we've been allotted pass, we will be forever with the Lord. So David has already declared, the Lord, whatever the threat, is my refuge, which is why he can say in indignation and shock, so how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If you'll notice, this verse is in quotation marks. David's advisors, his friends, his counselors, have become aware of a threat, and their counsel to David is, flee. Run. Get out of here. 
Because, first of all, there are malicious enemies threatening you. Notice who the threat is from. It's the wicked. There are wicked men roaming the streets at night. There are evil men afoot. There are dark, dangerous souls out. And so because of their malice, you should flee. The threat is imminent. Look, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow. So the bow has been strung. The bow has been built, bent. The arrow has been notched. They're ready to release. This is an imminent threat from wicked people. Today we would say the knives are out. The pistol's cocked. The rifle's locked and loaded. This is a very real threat about to be launched. It's unseen. They're in darkness. This isn't going to be a fair duel. This isn't going to be an upfront fight. Dastardly men are hiding in darkness, waiting to ambush. And notice who their prey is. It's the upright in heart. The reason that David is a target is because he's righteous. The reason that ungodly people are seeking him harm is because he's godly. So it's not just to take some money. It's not just to seize a property. The wicked are out with their bows drawn and their arrows notched, hiding in the dark and ambush, looking for a righteous man to slay. And in light of this malicious, imminent, unseen, dastardly danger, David's friends say, the only thing you can do is run. Fly away like a bird, far, far away to a mountain where you'll be safe. And David is indignant and says, how can you say that knowing that the Lord has been my refuge? And so the first thing that the, or the second thing that the righteous do when the foundations are shaken is we refuse to flee in fear. There may be times that God tells us to make a strategic retreat, but we will not leave our post so long as the Lord has called us to it. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the wicked to prevail is for the righteous to do nothing. Psalm 25 says, like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. That wicked do wicked deeds, and it's the job of the righteous to not be fearful and run, but to stand the ground and to defend the weak and to help the helpless and to stand for what's right because we're not afraid if God is our refuge. Y'all probably saw the footage this week of that terrible attack of a woman on a subway. And part of me thought, why are these people videoing it rather than someone jumping on this man and helping this poor helpless woman? And this wasn't an isolated incident. You've heard of other occasions where people in a neighborhood will hear someone being attacked and they'll stay hiding in their apartments and their homes and won't do anything. And that's not what the righteous do. And we're not going to be cowed into silence by a cancel culture. And we're not going to be intimidated by false accusations and made-up names. The righteous stand fast and firm because the Lord is our refuge. And we're not going to run in fear from the unrighteous because God is going to protect us. Next comes the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now they've gone from a very specific threat to a more general condition because the foundations that are being talked about here are the foundations of social order. Now this is how the New Living Translation translates it. The foundations of law and order have collapsed. This is how the message translates it. The bottoms dropped out of the country and good people don't stand a chance. <laughs> and if you travel the world, you know that many countries live in these conditions where the last thing you would ever do is call the police. 
where more fearful than a bandit is a federale, and where you fear your governing authorities, or where it's so corrupt that you know you won't get justice unless you have a bribe, and unless you're of a particular status and class. And I'm shocked at where our own country has been and what we're seeing. And so now David's friends, again, these are his allies, wanting his good, saying there's a very specific threat, but the general condition is there's, there's no social order to rely on. There's no police to call. You can't assume the government's going to come to your rescue, so get out of here. But for those whose refuge is the Lord, the righteous refuse to despair. We're not going to give up hope. We're not going to simply run and hide. Now, the foundations of a civilized, stable, just, and peaceful society, just to name a few, is you have to have healthy families because the family is a cell of a society. What the cell is to a body, a family is to a society. And you have to have healthy families. Effective schools that actually educate people and train them for a profession and teach them how to be good citizens. Righteous laws that people feel good about obeying because the people that they elected pass the laws that they want to obey and that apply applicably to all. Dependable and fair institutions that you can assume the electricity is going to stay on and stay on for everybody and not just the rich and that the water is going to turn on and that the water is going to be safe to drink and that the institutions function and they function for everybody, not just the wealthy. Secure borders and safe communities that you can't have the threat of armies marching in or people rioting within. There has to be stability. You have to have trustworthy news sources that you can rely on the information that's coming out. You have to have godly, righteous morals that people agree to obey, reliable government, that you have a good feeling that the people in authority making decisions are competent, are <laughs> pursuing the right ends, and aren't just selfless and self-seeking, or selfish and self-seeking, that the courts are just, that the economy works for everybody, that the citizens are producing and contributing and not just absorbing and taking and that they obey the law because you can't police everyone at every time and that there's churches and religious institutions and organizations that are promoting these things and these foundations plural aren't just shifting they're not just eroding they're being attacked and destroyed and these foundations are rocking and reeling which is why individuals and families are rocking and reeling under anxiety and depression and drugs and dependency are up, and suicide is up, and all the fear and all the hostility and all the contention and all the conflict, and no one expects the government to be able to redeem us out of this. But we don't despair because God is our refuge. Our hope was never in our society. Our hope was never in a particular civilization. Our hope was never in the government and the schools and the economy. Our refuge, our hope, our trust is in the Lord. So what do we do? We're not going to despair, but we're going to look to the Lord as our refuge for protection, preservation, and perseverance to be able to endure. And we're not going to flee in fear, but we're going to remain faithful at our post to push back the darkness in whatever area God has positioned us to do so. And so we're going to boldly speak the truth in love and not be intimidated into silence. And we're going to keep loving God, one another, and others, even if lawlessness makes other people's love grow cold. And we're going to get informed to vote for candidates 
that are championing the relatively more righteous platform and have the competence, character, and courage to pursue those goals for the good of society, even if they're opposed and attacked. And we're going to keep preaching the gospel zealously because the only hope for this or any other society is for individuals to be redeemed and to be regenerated and to be sanctified into more righteous men and women and ultimately for God to come and restore peace and to make a new earth that will be righteous forever. But that's where our hope is. And then we're going to stick together and support one another. We are going to gather as the people of God. We are going to congregate as Christ's delivered ones. And not just in this church, but any who belong to the Lord. And it doesn't really matter what denomination is on their church or what minor theological differences may be. If they belong to the Lord and we belong to the Lord, then the Lord is our refuge and we're going to help and support one another. And we're not going to despair, even if the times are despairing. And we're going to do all this because the righteous recognize that the Lord is sovereign. David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His friends are looking at the archers in the dark. His friends are looking at the lawless society around them. David's eyes are fixed on the throne of God in heaven and his foundations are unassailable. And his palace is invincible. And righteousness reigns in heaven because it's a holy temple. And David reminds himself that God is in charge, that God is still sovereign. And there have been times in history when he has allowed his people to be removed from the promised land. And he's allowed different civilizations to fall. And he's allowed for a season for the wicked to prevail. But God is the one in charge. And he can convert a Roman Empire. And he can reconvert a Germanic Europe. And he can restore anything that the wicked do. And so we remind ourselves that our God is in the heavens. And he is almighty. And he is all-knowing. And he is all-good. And I'm not going to allow the threats around me or the condition of my particular society to dishearten me and discourage me because my refuge is in the Lord. Next, the righteous remember that the Lord will judge. God isn't just sitting idle in his throne room. Look at verse 4. His eyes are beholding. His eyelids are testing, evaluating, appraising the sons of men. He's testing both the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. God sees the wicked in the darkness with their bows and arrows. God spots their ambushes. And as they're preparing to launch their arrows and let them rain down on the righteous, God is preparing to launch his judgment and let it rain down like fire and brimstone. Vengeance is God's and he'll repay. And so I don't have to lose heart because justice will be done. I need to consider that God is also evaluating the righteous. And so I'm going to remain righteous, which is our next application point. That when the foundations are destroyed, the righteous remain resolutely righteous because the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. God is watching. I can't control what another person does, but I can control what I do. And as much as others hate and heckle, I'm not going to reciprocate. And as much as people uh, assault and attack and antagonize, I'm not going to reciprocate. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm not going to pursue goals by any means necessary. 
I'm not going to respond in kind when the wicked act wickedly. By God's grace, we're going to be righteous because our God is righteous and because he loves righteousness and because at the end of the day, righteousness will prevail. And I'll answer for God what I did in this and that instance and whether I allowed myself to be provoked or whether I kept, like my Lord, not reviling even when I was reviled and praying for forgiveness when those attacked me and that we will be, by God's grace, pristine and pure and maintain our integrity, whatever the rest of the world does. And if others heckle and antagonize those for going to a convention, I won't, we won't. And if others will slander and gossip and lie, I won't, we won't, because we are the Lord's and he is righteous and he loves righteousness and we will remain righteous, however unrighteously the wicked act towards us. And so, finally, what do the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? We remember that we will behold his face someday. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the next world, not this. Our hope is in a perfect new earth, not perfecting this earth. Our hope is that we will behold the Lord face to face and no one can take that hope from us. The worst the world can do is allow me to see God sooner. The worst the world can do is send me to my father to see him sooner. And so if the wicked are lying in ambush to attack the righteous, if the foundations of society are destroyed, what do the righteous do? First of all, we make the Lord our refuge and our eyes turn to him to protect and to preserve and deliver. Secondly, we refuse to flee in fear, but we stand fast and maintain our post and we will by God's grace be faithful to push back the darkness and to do good. We refuse to despair because God is in charge and he is coming and there's coming a day when the righteous will live on a new earth with King Jesus. We recognize and remind each other that God is sovereign and our hope isn't on the next election or particular judges or an uptick in the economy or educational reform. These things can help, these things can slow the decline, but ultimately our hope is in Christ returning and setting all things right forever and ever. The righteous remember that the Lord will judge, and so we let him deal with the wicked. And for ourselves, we live righteously because our God is righteous and he loves righteousness. So we are resolute to live according to God's law and not the lawlessness we see around us. And we live in the hope of seeing God because that is ultimately our hope in this life. And even if we lived in a particular season of peace versus turmoil, we will all breathe our last and we will all enter into the presence of God and all of our hope lies in Him and in living with Him, which is why it's so critical that now we encourage individuals to put their faith in Jesus Christ and to ask Him to be their Savior while there's time. And again, as dark as the days become, our hope is on the dawn that's rising. And this is part of the good that we will do for this world in these darkening times. Um, a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark, now used to be at Princeton, now at Baylor, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, wondering how you could take 11 frightened men fleeing from a leader that was hanging on a cross and in 250 years have 25, I'm sorry, have 125 million converts in the Roman Empire. 
How did a ragtag group of fishermen following a leader that was crucified, how could you somehow form a religion that would become the primary religion of the Roman Empire and Western civilization? That's the question. And in one of the chapters entitled Urban Chaos and Crisis, he talks about what it would have been to live in a city in the first century AD. They were cramped and they were crowded. He takes for an example Antioch. Antioch had a population density of 117 people per acre, which to put that in comparison, Manhattan Island is 100. But Manhattan Island could grow up. So you have dense populations with no soap, no sanitation, no uh, societal help for infrastructure in case of disease or crisis. And into, so I'm going to read you a little description of Antioch and then of the Christians when they planted a church in Antioch. Any accurate portrait of Antioch or other first century city must depict a community filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. A city where the average family lived a squalid life in filthy and cramped quarters, where at least half of the children died at birth or during infancy, and where most of the children who lived lost at least one parent before reaching maturity. A city filled with hatred and fear rooted in intense ethnic antagonisms and exacerbated by a constant stream of strangers. A city lacking in stable networks of attachments so that petty incidents could prompt mob violence. Sound familiar? A city where crime flourished and the streets were dangerous at night. And a city repeatedly smashed by cataclysmic catastrophes where a resident could expect literally to be homeless from time to time providing that they were among the survivors. And into this dark existence, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and a new kind of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity and hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments and opened up their homes and hospitality. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. Whoever you were, whatever race, whatever background, whatever history, whatever socioeconomic setting, you could become a brother and sister in the family if Christ was your Savior and God was your Father. It didn't matter who you were before. In Christ, we're family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. That in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Uh, I asked Fred a few weeks ago, just in light of some of the riots and the turmoil, what do we as a church do in light of the racial controversies? And Fred said, I was part of those in the 60s. And my counsel to you is keep preaching Christ because only Christ is going to fix this. Don't get involved in politics. Keep preaching the gospel because only the gospel is going to fix this. Don't keep focusing on things that separate us. Focus on Christ and the gospel that unites us. And so that's what we've done. And that's what we'll keep doing. And here's the sociologist. I'm going to argue that Christianity, once it appeared, provided a superior capacity for meeting the chronic problems of the society around it. And since Antioch suffered acutely from all of these urban problems, it was in acute need of solutions. No wonder the Christians were so warmly received in the city when the missionaries came. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, 
but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. And that's how Christianity spread and conquered the Roman Empire with all of its wickedness and its coliseums and its slavery and its cruelty and its corruption. The Christians came and said, we will live lives of righteousness that the world has never seen. So the people will say, what God do you serve that could do this in this community? And then we'll throw open our arms and our doors to receive anybody who will come. And we'll give what aid we can. And we'll speak truth in a world of lies. And we'll stand firm when everybody flees. And we'll offer help when everybody hides in their homes. And we'll be the church that God wants us to be. And person by first, my family, my family, and street by street, and neighborhood by, by neighborhood, hopefully we'll shine bright for Christ. And we'll begin showing people how to rebuild those foundations. And we'll show new couples and new families how to build on more solid foundations and how to make their homes on rock, not sand, which is our sermon for next week. But until then, what shall the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? We will make the Lord our refuge and we will place our faith in home and remain faithful until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for the relevance of the Bible, that the description of a sociologist from 2,000 years ago or the psalm of a king 3,000 years ago are very relevant for us today because times of turmoil and danger and ethnic conflict are not new. They are part of the human conditions when sinners have to live with one another. And there are always wicked trying to ambush the upright. And there are always evil people trying to devastate the foundations of stable society. And there are always those who are willing to foment conflict to seize power. There are always those willing to slander and lie and accuse in order to overthrow the righteous and take control. So this is nothing new, but it's frightening. It's new to us. And so would you remind us the truth of this text, the beauty of this psalm, the relevance of this passage, and would we make the Lord our refuge? Would we be resolute in our righteousness until you come someday and set things right? And until then, would you allow us to be a loving community in a loveless age? Would you allow us to be truthful and righteous and to give hope and help to everyone that you bring our way or to everyone that will receive us when we knock on their doors? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.